New normal. We've been hearing these words a lot lately, haven't we? New normal is what our life is about now, what our life is like. I don't, I don't know about you, uh, but I'm getting to the point where I really liked the old normal. <laughs> sure, I was probably, you know, admittedly too busy uh, doing too many things and could use a little bit of slowing down, but at least in the old normal, I had freedom. I had choice as to where I went, who I hung out with, what I could do with my time, and now we find ourselves at the mercy of basically the government and health officials and people telling us what is safe and not safe, how big our bubble is, when we can start seeing other people again. Or the newer question that's burning on many of our minds is, you know, when we do emerge from our homes, from these, this new normal that we've found ourselves in, what will the world look like? How will it have changed? These words, new normal, for many of us are challenging what our lives are built on. In a country and a world that has never been so connected and so advanced, it is staggering and, and also slightly humbling that an invisible virus can, can shut it down. What can we hold on to in these moments? What, how can we live centered, stable, hopeful lives in the midst of this? The Bible's answer to that is Pentecost. Everyday Pentecost. The gospel reading for this morning is an incredible story that sheds light for those, uh, sheds light for those who, who want more out of life than what meets our eyes in the present moment. Because Jesus is actually speaking about another normal, another new normal. When he stands up on the greatest day of the Festival of Tabernacles and he says to all the people there, come, let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, streams of living water will flow from them. He announces a new normal. And so what does that have to do with where we are today? Let's look at it under three points this morning. First, what is it to thirst? What is the water? Second, what is the water that Jesus is talking about? And then third, how do we receive it? What is it to thirst? What is the water Jesus is talking about? And how do we receive it? today. So first, what is it to, to thirst? Well, the metaphor of thirsting, as Jesus uses in this passage, is one that everyone or most everyone in the world would understand at a moment. Any, any, anyone would understand. Just this week, uh, my son, you know, he's 20 months old, so he's rather short, and, and, and I was drinking a cup of water, and then and I noticed that he had his arms up, and he was whining, and he was reaching for something as I was drinking. A cup. And being an aware parent, it took me more than 30 seconds to realize that what he was whining for was the cup of water in my hand. He was thirsty. And so when I realized this, and when I went and I got him a cup to drink, and I gave it to him, and he chugged it all back, he was thirsty. He knew he was thirsty, and he knew what would satisfy him. Have you ever found himself, yourself in his shoes before? You know, maybe not reaching up to your parents, begging them for a drink, but do you know the feeling of being thirsty? 
Think of the last time you were in a place where you didn't have water, didn't have something to drink, and you were just parched. It's an overwhelming experience. And so then, you know, what is Jesus talking about for these people? What are these people at the feast thirsty for? Well, to answer this, we need to back up and remember an important detail coming from the first few pages of the Bible. In Genesis, when God created the heaven and earth, heavens and earth, he created human beings different than all the other creatures. And, and they were beings that he actually infused his breath into. Well, we read about this in the Psalms, right? right? That, that um, God pours out his spirit, his breath, and it leads to praise. And in the, uh, in the Genesis story, we see that God infused human beings with his breath, and they came to life, and then he calls them very good. And I'm, I'm struck every time I read it that the same Hebrew word for breath is the one for spirit. They're the same word. Filled with God's very presence, his personal presence. It's important, and it's sacred. And this tells us that we were created to be infused with the very life of God, the presence of the Creator himself, the breath of God in our lungs. You know, the, the Acts passage that we read today, the, the Pentecost story that is familiar to so many of us, is the reinfusion of God's Spirit in his people. On the first page of the Bible, we're told that God intends us to be filled but then something terrible happened. Right? Adam and Eve were deceived. They, they listened to the serpent. They ate the fruit. They fell into temptation. What, what did the devil do? The devil made them thirst for something, for freedom, for the ability to make their own decisions, a thirst to be like God, independent. And they listened to him, and they ate the fruit that God told them not to. They wanted more to life than what met their eyes. And if we follow the story, you know, it ends up backfiring on them. It doesn't give them more. It actually leads them out of God's life-giving presence, out of the garden, and sets a domino track off of longing to be satisfied, of thirsting for what God had created human beings to, to have, which is being filled with his Holy Spirit. And this thirst congregation. This thirst is something that we still feel today. We, like Adam and Eve, are tempted to quench our thirst apart from God on our own. Rebecca McLaughlin is an Oxford professor, and she wrote a, a great little book that I'm reading right now on defending the Christian faith. And she, she puts her finger on a pressure point in our culture right now that, that appeals to people who are thirsty that says this is how you are satisfied and she says this she says two years ago an agnostic friend who teaches at a world-class university told me that she constantly has conversations with students who ask her why they're hooking up as much as they are and not happy see our culture through TV commercials, through friends, through books, through magazines, says that, that freedom, that more, the more freedom that we have in sexual expression, the more freedom we have in career choice, in what we choose for coffee shops, the more freedom that we have, the, 
the more happy that we'll be, the more satisfied we'll be. Freedom will quench our thirst. But it doesn't work like that. See, we, we still find ourselves thirsting and wanting more. In 2015, Business Insider magazine published an article about Marcus Pearson. Some of you may recognize that name. He was the creator of the uh, very popular video game called Minecraft. And he recently sold his company for a whopping two and a half billion dollars, making him one of the richest, most successful entrepreneurs out there. And now he spends his time, this article was saying, doing whatever he wants. He has complete freedom. But is his thirst quenched? Does he have what he wants out of life? Pearson shared a tweet recently that said, the problem with getting everything you, is that you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, I've never felt so isolated. Secularism has told us that the best way to live is to chase individual happiness. Whatever makes you happy, do it. And Pearson is saying, I've done that. And I'm still thirsty. I'm still feeling isolated. I'm still feeling that, that chasm that, being, that Adam and Eve probably felt, being cast out from the presence of God. He's still thirsty. Well, well, you say, what if we do the opposite? What if we follow the rules? What if we, we do what Adam and Eve did not and obey everything that God has put in front of us? The law of God. Follow it. Dot our, I, uh, our I's. Cross our T's. Surely, you know, you know, being confident and, and obedient to God will satisfy our thirst. Life is about buckling down and doing the right things. Well, let's take a look at that because, you know, there's this episode in one of the Gospels where a rich man comes to Jesus and asks him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, follow the rules. Do what is commanded in the law. And he responds to Jesus, I, I have, ever since I was a boy. Think about it for a second. You know, oftentimes we skip along in that passage and talk about how the rich man was, was trusting in his wealth too much. But if we just pause it right there, when, when he's, he's told Jesus that he has followed the law, he has been obedient ever since he was a boy, yet he's still coming to Jesus, asking him the question, what must I do to live eternally? He still shows up thirsty. We can't justify ourselves on our own. See, no matter how closely we follow the law, follow the rules, there will always be that thing in the back of our minds that says to us, have I done enough? Am I good enough? We will always be looking for outside approval in order to justify ourselves. We can't do that on our own. And Jesus' words to him are words that would provide him satisfaction if he were to listen. See, this is the good news in this passage, is that, you know, we are thirsty people in a thirsty world, and this is good news because Jesus says it's, it's the good news of the gospel is only for those who know they are thirsty who know that they can't 
do it on their own. Are you thirsty, church? Are you thirsty for life? Do you find yourself looking at the world and saying, there's got to be more than this? Then come to Jesus and see the water that he offers us today. See, this isn't an accident. This is the second point. What is the water? This isn't an accident that Jesus is saying on the last day of the festival of tabernacles. This isn't an accident that the gospel writer Luke says that Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice to the people. This isn't an accident. It's it's a message that in the words of, of Tim Keller, he says that has been burning in Jesus to the point where they explode. And he changed that feast in 180 characters or less. And he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from them. See, Jesus is proclaiming on the last day of the festival of tabernacles. And this was a a feast that the Israelites would do every year that reminded them uh, of of how Jesus, how the, the Israelites have been saved from and provided for in the desert by God. They had just been freed from slavery in Egypt, and, and they wandered through the desert. And this feast that they would do every year, they would actually camp out for seven or eight days in tents. See, our church isn't the only one that has an annual camp, camping trip planned in, in the calendar. The, the Israelites did this every year, and they did it to remind themselves of how God provided for them when they wandered from the desert, when they didn't have a home. But not only that, during the feast, the priests would draw water from one of the pools in Jerusalem. Every day, they would do this. And they would draw water from the pool of Siloam, and then they would walk. The priests would walk in procession to the temple. And the people of Israel would follow them, and they would be singing praises to God. They would be, they would be shouting praise to the Lord. And then they would reach the temple, and then they would pour the water out from the, 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 the jar And they did this for two reasons. First, to remember, right? This was a feast of remembering, remembering the fact that when when they were wandering the desert and they were thirsty, you remember the story in Exodus? They'd just left Egypt and and the people were grumbling and they were saying to Moses, you brought us out here to die. We're thirsty. Give us something to drink. And Moses goes to God and says, what am I to do? And God says, go to a rock and strike it with a staff. And water will pour out. And he did it. And it happened. He struck the rock and water poured out. And the Lord quenched their thirst. He provided for them. And so the priests, every day, they would pour water out to remember how the Lord provided for them in the past. But not only that. We read from Ezekiel already today, but there was another prophecy in Ezekiel where Ezekiel has this vision of the temple of God and he's being guided around the temple by an angel. And he sees that the temple is actually overflowing with water. You know, in one part, it's up to his ankles. Another part, it's up to his his knees. And then he sees that it's a mighty river flowing from the temple. And everything that it touches begins to flourish, begins to blossom, begins to produce fruit. And the people of Israel would, every day in this feast, they would pour out the water and they would look forward to a day, what they, they called the Messianic Age, in which God would fulfill that prophecy, that water would flow from the temple, that they would, that they would experience flourishing when God poured out his spirit upon them 
and everything would come to life. And they longed for that day. And then Jesus gets up and says to them, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. And if you believe in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of water will flow from within you. Do you see Jesus is fulfilling prophecy? He is the one who reconnects people to the nourishment of God, the hope of life. Often, you know, we think, how could Jesus fulfill this prophecy? How could he satisfy our thirst today by stepping up in a temple so many years ago? Because Jesus knew that in a little while he would endure the judgment, the thirst. The people experienced that day in the temple, that we experienced today, that was set off by the domino of sin in the garden. The life without God. Jesus You know, he's the one who lived in perfect relationship with God. He had infused in him God's God's spirit. You remember the, the baptism of Jesus when the dove comes down from heaven and rests on Jesus. And the booming voice that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was filled with God's spirit. He wasn't thirsty. But when he hung on the cross, the son of man said, I thirst. This wasn't a literal thirst. This was a spiritual thirst. On the cross, Jesus was thirsting for God. Jesus is echoing on the cross the fear of every human being that we will die alone, thirsty, spiritually alone, left wanting more. To the one who was filled, why was he emptied on the cross? Well, he did this for us. He did this so you and I could be satisfied, so that our thirst for God could be quenched, so that the sin in the garden could be undone, and we could once again live in in an intimate relationship with God. This is Pentecost. This is the day that God sends his spirit to dwell in the hearts of anyone who believes to fill us, to renew us, to empower us. Are you thirsty? How do we receive it? Jesus says in this passage, believe, believe. And what he's saying is that in order to receive the gift of the Spirit, we need to first come to him thirsty. We need to recognize that we can't on our own satisfy the craving for thirst apart from him. But believing also means trust. Trusting in Jesus that runs, runs deeper than simply knowing about Jesus, but through knowing Jesus. Often we think of Pentecost. We think of the special gifts of the Spirit, you know, prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, preaching, teaching, all of these, these amazing things that the apostles did, you know, in the, in the book of Acts. And many people say that that Acts should be more accurately called the Acts of the Holy Spirit rather than the Acts of the Apostles. And I believe firmly that the Spirit does bring these gifts to life in us and that the Holy Spirit is active in in our world in this way. But the primary role of the Spirit 
as we read about in the, in the catechism, as what Tim Keller says so clearly, he says, the, the Holy Spirit puts the spotlight on Christ for us. It, it shows us how to drink Christ and his benefits. See, often, church, we struggle to do this well. It's like in, that favorite, in my favorite movie, Moneyball, there's a metaphor at the end of the movie that shows, you know, a very large, heavy-hitting baseball player. One of these baseball players who you'd look at and you'd say, there's no way that person plays a sport. And yet, he does. And we learn that this particular player is scared to run to second base. Every time they hit the ball, they run to first base and stop. Run to first base and stop. But one time, he decides to go for it. He decides to run around first base and head for second base. And then he falls. He trips over his feet and falls face first into the dust of the baseball diamond and panics and then scrambles back to first base and clings to it with, his, with all of his might and lays there and then realizes that everyone is cheering. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's clapping and looks up and realizes why. It's not just because he's done the stupidest thing in the world, tripping over first base, but because he's actually hit a home run. The ball went 60 feet over the fence, and he didn't realize it. See, people of God, we often stop at first base and forget that Jesus has hit the ball out of the park for us. And this, knowing this, knowing the home run we have in Christ is the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. For a Christian, the home run for us is that the worst case scenario for us is eternal life with Jesus forever. This is the worst case. And we can know this, but what does it mean to really know this in our hearts? Well, it, it often means that... that um, that we will let that flow out from us. It will change the way that we, that we live in the world today. Believing, really knowing, means drinking more. Think about it. If you're thirsty, how do you get quenched? You go to the cupboard you take out a cup and you fill it with water from the tap and you drink and you drink and then all of a sudden you realize that you're full and you can't, you can't fit any more water. How do we do this as a Christian? How do we drink the Holy Spirit? We go to the shelf, we take out the Bible and we read and we pray and we meditate on the words. We drink the word of God again and again and again every day and let it overflow Right. Moses in Numbers, in that passage that we read, would have dream, wouldn't hardly dreamed about a day like today where we would all be filled with God's presence. And yet we are. So let's drink. Let's meditate. Let's pray. Let's be filled by the Holy Spirit by spending time with Jesus because full people are dangerous people. People filled with the Spirit overflow with it, and it changes how we see our world. 
It changes how we see our money. It changes how we see our career. It changes how we see our school. It changes how we parent. Because we know that whatever happens in our world today pales in comparison to what God has promised us in the future. People who are filled with the Spirit know that, that our world, you know, may be, may be falling away, and we should expect that. But God also promises that he's going to renew us and renew our world, and we get to participate in that. We get to see that he is alive in our world in the areas we least expect it to be. And so we need to drink the Spirit. This doesn't just happen We need to be intentional, coming to Jesus daily to drink. He's hit a home run for us so that we can drink. And we have a table in front of us that is spiritual water, spiritual food, given to nourish us and strengthen us and send us as people who overflow with gratitude and joy in the gospel. These The bread and the cup are signs and seals of the finished work of Christ on our hearts. As we drink the cup and as we eat the bread, the Holy Spirit is at work filling us up with knowing and being united to Jesus and all that he's done for us. The new normal that will be for us God's kingdom that we can look forward to, that we can long for, the feast and celebration eternally. Let's come to the table together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's hard to even put into words gratitude or thankfulness, Father. And I just pray that we would experience your Holy Spirit in our lives, filling us up today as we come to the table. Lord, as we hear the gospel, the good news that Christ was poured out, his blood was poured out for us on the cross, that we may, we may experience the life-giving blood given to us. Lord, pray that this would sink deep into our hearts, that it would change the way that we live our lives, that our lives would overflow with the Holy Spirit. God, teach us patiently what it means to drink from your word, to drink Jesus in prayer and meditation, in scripture reading. Lord, teach us 